This morning, we find ourselves only a week and a half in to a brand new year. And even amidst our post-holiday busy schedules and amidst returning to our daily and weekly routines, I trust that the freshness and the novelty and the anticipation of this burgeoning new year is not lost on you just yet. And I also hope that over these past few weeks, you've taken time to reflect and meditate on your knees and with an open Bible on how you'll order your life in 2014 such that you might be pleasing to the Lord in all things. Pastor John gave us that wonderful exhortation last Sunday night from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul tells us that the true Christian always has as his ambition to be pleasing to God. And whether or not this noble ambition finds expression through a series of resolutions for you, I pray that you all have been thinking seriously and practically about how you will order your lives in 2014 in order to do all things to the glory of God. And this time of reflection and reorientation hasn't been lost on me as I examine myself and my calendar and uh, consider priorities biblically and set goals for the coming year. And I've even done that as I've considered grace life and where we are as a fellowship group and where we are within the body of Grace Church. In fact, people have even asked me about my goals for this group, uh, what direction I'd like to see it go in and, 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 and all those kinds of questions, which were, was kind of a strange thought for me. I hadn't really begun thinking about it till about a month ago when somebody asked me that. I think they were thinking about coming to the group and so they wanted to know my thoughts on the matter. And, and as I've thought about that, though, especially as the New Year's come and brought this time of reflection, there's been much occasion for my thanksgiving and joy b- before the Lord on your behalf. And not unlike the way Paul has expressed his joy and thanksgiving for the Philippians on account of the, the partnership with him in the gospel and on account of their growth in grace as they progress in spiritual maturity. I feel very much the same things. I thank God for the privilege of serving such a well-taught group, a group so hungry for the scriptures and the the bare truth of God's word. I think Grace Life has been particularly blessed over the years with uh, exceptional teaching from men like Lance Quinn and Stuart Scott and Don Green and, of course, Phil Johnson and John MacArthur. The fruit of those men's labors in the word has resulted in a great deal of spiritual maturity in, in you people. And I think that if you asked around Grace Church what distinguishes Grace Life as a fellowship group, you have a lot of people focus on our in-depth teaching. And, and I can testify from experience that this group is evidently marked by a, a high esteem for your pastors and shepherds, as Phil and I and the others on our leadership team at Grace Life do experience your genuine love and affection for us and appreciation. And it's been a joy for me to get to know many of you on a personal level and as I've served alongside you all in the last year and a half. And in that time, especially through our Bible studies and interacting with our shepherds and those who attend our Bible studies, I've seen a group of saints that care for one another, where the rich fellowship that we have in Christ is truly lived out in practice. But as is the case with any congregation, I mean, even as it was the case with the Philippians, there's always room for growth. There's always a possibility to excel still more. And as I thought about goals for Grace Life in 2014, things that I'm asking the Lord for on our behalf, my heart continues to rest on our excelling still more in our fellowship and care for one another. Just as much as I delight to hear of Grace Life's reputation around the church as a well-taught group who loves the Word of God, I'm jealous that we would also be known, and not, not instead, but also be known as the fellowship group full of brothers and sisters who really and truly care about one another, who know by the practice and by the experience of relationships with one another, the the thriving, vital, living fellowship that exists between fellow members of the body of Christ. This would be a place where people are involved in each other's lives, where they delight to spend time with one another, where they're they're sacrificially committed to, to fighting for holiness alongside of one another, where practical and physical needs are made known in humility 
and then are met in love and in self-sacrifice. And so at this time of biblical reflection and reorientation, I count it to be a, a blessed providence of God that our study in the book of Philippians has taken us to the first verse of chapter 4 at the outset of this new year. Because it, it's in this verse that we're presented with yet another window into the love and fellowship and tender affection that was shared between Paul and his precious friends in the church of Philippi. And that picture of, of warm affection, of endearing delight, of living and loving communion between believers serves as such a wonderful example to us as we press on into greater Christ-likeness in our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. And at the outset of Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, we're immediately confronted with the word, therefore, and are thereby instructed to consider the context in which this verse comes. And if you've been with us in our studies through the book of Philippians, you'll remember that in the second half of chapter 3, Paul is exhorting his friends to, to follow his example, his example of expending maximum effort in the race of Christian holiness. He tells them in chapter 3, verse 14, that his singular preoccupation is pressing on in the pursuit of practical righteousness so that he might reach the finish line and lay hold of the prize that is that face-to-face, sin-free fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3, he acknowledges that there are those who would call themselves Christians who don't follow Paul's example of holiness, but who give themselves over to the gratification of their sensual desires, who, by continuing in unbroken patterns of sin in their lives, demonstrate by their conduct that they are not true followers of Jesus at all. Paul warns the Philippians not to follow the example of these sensualists because that lifestyle, he says, ends not in satisfaction but in destruction and renders one an enemy of the cross of Christ. And then after that negative exhortation, he goes on in verses 20 and 21 to give two positive reasons for pressing on in the fight against sin. And the first has to do with our present position as citizens of heaven. Paul tells us that we are already enrolled as citizens on the register of heaven, that we are merely pilgrims sojourning in a foreign land. But no matter what kinds of pressures that there are to conform to the worldliness and sensuality that surrounds us, our lives must be ruled and governed by the laws of the land of our citizenship. And of course, that land, heaven, is distinguished in every way by holiness and purity. And so if that is the country of our citizenship, we ought to live like citizens here as we sojourn in a foreign land. And then secondly, not only are we to be motivated toward holiness because we are presently citizens of heaven, but also because of our glorious future hope, namely the coming of Christ to save us from sin and the marvelous destiny of the resurrected, glorified body. And so Paul's argument is that if our body is destined to be purged from all sin and if it's destined to be transformed into conformity with the body of Christ's glory, well, then we ought not to surrender our bodies as the willing instruments of unrighteousness. If that's the future of our bodies, we ought to live like that in the present. We ought to, as he says in chapter 4, verse 1, we ought to stand firm against all temptations to slacken in our pursuit of holiness and make every effort to press on in the race of the Christian life. But before Paul arrives at the crescendo of that ringing exhortation to stand firm in our battle against sin, to hold our ground as good soldiers of Christ Jesus, he couches that exhortation in a flood of the most warmly affectionate and tenderly endearing language found in any of his letters. And so in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, he writes, Therefore... My brethren, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So with the tears 
with which he mourned the apostasy of the sensualists still moist in his eyes. He can barely handle the thought that his dear Philippians might ever go out from Christ and so demonstrate that they were never truly of Christ, 1 John 2.19. And so his exhortation for them to stand firm comes with a profusion of affectionate designations that so clearly manifests the unique bond of genuine love and friendship that Paul shared with these fellow friends. And so my aim this morning is to meditate on each of these five terms of endearment so that we might more fully understand the nature of our true relationship to one another as fellow believers. I want us to be stirred up to cultivate this same kind of loving and affectionate fellowship with one another so that we might truly live life together with one another as the body of Christ in this place and in that way conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. So let's start with number one, that first term of endearment that Paul uses to designate his relationship with the Philippians is, number one, brethren, brethren. And the New American Standard in, inverts the word order of the Greek to make the sentence flow a little bit more smoothly in English. But in the original, the term brethren is presented first, and it anchors the rest of the description. I should say the rest of the descriptions, the rest of those, those terms of endearment. It's, he says, therefore, my brethren, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. At the most basic level, most fundamentally, Christians relate to one another as brothers and sisters. The most basic level of our relationships with one another is marked by a unique familial bond. And this designation dominates Paul's thinking throughout his letters. And even this present letter to the Philippians, he addresses them as brethren six other times. Uh, the first in chapter 1, verse 12 and then three times in chapter 3, in verses 1, 13, and 17. Here in verse 1 of chapter 4, again in chapter 4, verse 8, and then finally in chapter 4, verse 21. But even though Paul is so profuse in using this designation, brethren, he's not at all using it as just some sort of filler word. I fear sometimes that we've begun to, to treat the term brother or sister as a sort of throwaway term that that's been evacuated of all of its meaning. Hey, brother, what's going on, brother? That kind of thing. But it wasn't like that for Paul. He used the term a lot, but he used it purposefully, knowing that it would engender the kind of tenderness and affection from his readers that was appropriate because it would remind them of their spiritual union with one another in belonging to the family of God. On the basis of the atoning work of Christ on behalf of his people, all those who are united to the Son by faith have been adopted, adopted into the family of our Heavenly Father. And so we are brothers and sisters. And that's just a wonderful picture of the fellowship that believers in Jesus have with one another, to be brothers and sisters of the same family. Our relationship to one another is not based most foundationally upon common interests or shared hobbies. We're not merely a, a social club or a political organization that's joined together, linked, bound by superficial, subjective, natural commonalities. We are objectively united to one another by virtue of the electing work of the Father, the redemptive work of the Son, and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. In the same way it is with a, with a human family. A family is not merely a group of people with some shared interests and a subjective appreciation for one another. No, brothers and sisters are bound together by something much deeper than that, by the objective union that exists as a result of the love that was shared by their parents. And that objective reality that binds us together in a human family means that no matter what, we will always be there for one another. There may be tensions and arguments that exist between, say, myself and my two younger brothers. But no matter what happens in our lives, we will never stop being brothers. And that objective bond, it's unbreakable. And the same is true within the family of God. There may be tensions and disagreements that exist between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ at any given time in our spiritual walk. 
But just as nothing can separate any believer from the loving union that we have in Christ Jesus individually, neither can anything separate us from the union that we share with one another corporately. If we're all united to Christ, if I'm united to Christ and you're united to Christ, we're united to one another. And if none of us can ever be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, then we're always united to Christ. And if we're always united to Christ, we're always united to each other. One of the greater blessings in my life during my time in seminary came at a time when there was a a potential conflict in my life. And I actually don't remember much at all about what that particular threat was, but I do remember speaking about it to our children's pastor, to Matt White, uh, who is a, a friend, a good friend of mine. We, neither of us were on pastoral staff at the time. We just had gotten to know each other through seminary and through carpooling because we live in the same apartment complex. And as I spoke with him about whatever it was that was troubling me, he assured me that if I needed his help at all, I could come running day or night. And then he looked up at me and he said, you've got family. And that really struck me. And as you can see, it really stuck with me. And maybe it was especially because Jana and I don't actually have any blood family members out here on the West Coast. I think our our nearest family member is an uncle of hers in Nebraska. Otherwise, we're all East Coasters. But that sense of belonging and security and strength in numbers was just so comforting and reassuring to me when Matt said that, that, that I praised God for giving such a loving familial bond to his children. And friends, that kind of brotherly and sisterly bond needs to mark our relationship with one another. We need to be able to look one another in the eye. And and then from the darkest of trials to the smallest of conflicts and reassure one another that you've got family, that you belong with me, that I'm here for you whenever you need me. And it doesn't matter what diversity of circumstances and backgrounds we've come from. There is no room in the family of God for an attitude that exalts natural, superficial distinctions over and against supernatural, spiritual unity that belongs to every brother and sister in Jesus Christ. As if to say, you know, I prefer not to hang out with those folks. They don't really understand my kind of cultural background. Or, you know, those folks, they're just so much younger than me, or they're so much older than me. We're just at a different stage in life. They don't have young children, and we kind of do, and I kind of need people to to show me how that works and everything. So I'm just going to stick with this particular cross-section of the body of Christ. My little clique, I'm going to stay over here. But the problem is, for all of those distinctions, that none of them run as deep as what has happened to us in Jesus Christ. Cultural backgrounds, levels of education, age, circumstances in life. The gospel trumps all of that. And remember where Paul was coming from. I mean, he was circumcised, right? Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and a Pharisee of Pharisees. And as Paul penned these words, here in chapter 4 as he addresses the the Philippians as brethren, as he penned the word brethren the six other times in this uh, letter, he could remember a time all too clearly when the only thing that he would have called these Gentile pagans was uncircumcised dogs. He even would have looked down on, on Jewish proselytes and even fellow Israelites who didn't belong to that strictest sect of the Pharisees. But because of the marvelous work accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross, because of the sovereign work of God in snatching Paul from the blindness of his Judaism and snatching the Philippians from the blindness of their paganism and opening all of their eyes to the ugliness of their sin and the unspeakable glory of Jesus, granting to them this common faith in this crucified and risen Lord, they are now brethren. They are now brothers and sisters in Christ. And friends, no matter what distinctions might exist between you, whether ethnic and cultural backgrounds, levels of education, circumstances of life, shared interests and hobbies, and even degrees of spiritual maturity, the reality of our common adoption into the family of God puts all of us on a level 
and the things which we now have in common with one another as we share in Christ far outweigh any differences that exist between us on a, on a purely natural level. We are sinners born under God's just wrath and condemnation. We are undeserving recipients of the Father's gracious electing love. We are rebels for whom the sinless Son of God has gone to the cross and then rose from the dead in order to pay for our sins and provide our righteousness. We are hostile enemies overcome by the effectual and irresistible work of the Spirit to grant life and repentance and faith in our lives. And having been justified by that faith that was given to us as a free gift, we've been adopted into the family of God. And those shared realities far outweigh any worldly differences that exist between us. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And may we grasp the implications of what it means that we are brethren. And as glorious as that is, we are not just brethren. It's true that that familial bond is objective. You don't have a choice who your brothers and sisters are. That choice was the father's. And sometimes, even in your own family, you don't always like your brothers and sisters, do you? And it's almost as if Paul's thinking about that reality, that he adds a second term of endearment to describe his relationship with the Philippians. And that is, number two, they are beloved. Beloved. Look again at verse one. Therefore, my brethren, whom I love and long for. And then after he gives them the exhortation to stand firm in the Lord, again, at the, at the end of the verse of, of chapter one, of, uh, verse one of chapter four, Paul repeats that same designation and calls them my beloved again. He says my beloved at the beginning. He says my beloved at the end. And so the relationship that he has with the Philippians is not one of feuding brothers and sisters. There is no sibling rivalry. There's no thought of, well, okay, you're my brother, and so I guess I'm stuck with you. No, again, he, he brackets the verse at the beginning and the end by expressing his deep and heartfelt love for them. And the word that the NAS translates beloved is the adjective form of the Greek word agape, which Pastor John describes as, quote, the richest, deepest, and strongest Greek word for love. And another commentator writes that this love is deep-seated, self-sacrificing, thorough, intelligent, and purposeful, a love in which the entire personality takes part. And there are two components to this biblical love that exists between fellow believers and Jesus. The first component is affection, or you might also say delight. This love of affection or delight looks upon its object and seeing the loveliness and worthiness of the object, it finds great pleasure in it. And surely this was true of Paul as he treasured his friendship with the Philippians. We learn from this epistle that their hearts had been uniquely knit together in partnership for the gospel ministry. Chapter 1, verse 5 speaks of the Philippians' participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says, It's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. And then again in chapter 4, verse 15, he draws attention to the fact that after he left Macedonia, he says, no church shared with him in the matter of giving and receiving but the Philippians alone. There was a unique partnership, even in the, in the realm of financial support where they supported him and where nobody else did that knit their hearts together in the common cause of the gospel going forth among the pagan nations, the world. And so Paul can look upon the Philippians and he can take pleasure in them with that love of affection because of their progress in grace, because of what God has done in their lives. They're not worthy or lovely in and of themselves, but as they become increasingly conformed to the image of Christ, Paul sees Christ in them. And he is the sum and substance of all beauty, of all delightfulness, of all loveliness. 
But this love doesn't stay merely at the level of affection. When the heart is so full of delight for the beloved, that affection expresses itself in action. So you have affection and you have action. It's the kind of love that produces a sacrificial commitment to one another, that suffers great cost to itself, if necessary, in order to benefit the beloved. And that was true of Paul as well, in ways that we see even in just this epistle. In in chapter 2, verses 19 to 30, Paul speaks of sending his deeply cherished brothers, Timothy and Epaphroditus, back to the Philippians for their own sake. You remember how he spoke of Timothy, how Timothy was Paul's kindred spirit. The Greek word is isopsukos, one soul. It was his kindred spirit in a way that was entirely unique, that Timothy had demonstrated his proven worth and had served alongside Paul in gospel ministry and had done so even as if he were Paul's own son. Surely Paul would have wanted his spiritual son by his side as he faced his imprisonment and his impending trial before Nero. But because he knew that Timothy would be a specific benefit to the Philippians, Paul was willing to send him back to them. And the same with Epaphroditus, the one who Paul calls his brother, his fellow worker, and his fellow soldier in chapter 2, verse 25. Paul explains to the Philippians that Epaphroditus had almost died on his journey and says that in verse 27, in sparing him, the Lord also had mercy on me, Paul says, because if he died, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow. And yet as much as he loved Epaphroditus and could have truly benefited from his personal ministry to him while in prison, he gladly sent him back to the Philippians because he knew that seeing him would cause them to rejoice And that's to say nothing of Paul's suffering for Christ on behalf of the Philippians, which he describes in chapter 2, verse 17, as being poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. The fortune-telling slave girl would have remembered the beating that Paul received at the hands of the magistrates in Acts 16. The jailer would have remembered the bruises on his wrists and ankles from being fastened in the stocks. And any one of the people in the church of Philippi could have observed in Paul's body the brand marks of Jesus, he says in Galatians 6. And Grace Life, I ask you, do you have any experimental knowledge of this kind of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Can you look upon them and in integrity call them my beloved brethren? Is there a delight, a bubbling up of true affection? as you identify evidences of grace in their lives and behold with the eyes of your heart the glory of Christ revealed in your brothers and sisters as they become increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. And does that love and affection and delight, does that well up and overflow into action, into real concrete deeds of service and self-sacrifice? You may not endure beatings on behalf of your brethren like the Apostle Paul did, but Are you sacrificially committing yourselves to one another, pouring yourselves out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of the faith of your brothers and sisters? Are you being inconvenienced by meeting the needs of the saints, but counting that inconvenience as loss for the surpassing value of the communion with Christ that comes as a result of serving his people the way he served them? And perhaps the most important question, if you're not, what kinds of provisions are you making to see that changes come about in 2014? What kinds of adjustments need to be made in your life? What kinds of priorities need to be reevaluated? What idols need to be sacrificed? You have to ask yourself these questions. And I tell you, friends, that it will be worth it in order to truly call your brethren Beloved, a third term of endearment that teaches us much about the nature of Christian fellowship is best translated as a longer phrase and not a single word. Number three, those whom I long for. Those whom I long for. And this word, epipathetoi, is a very strong word that's found nowhere else in the New Testament in this precise form. 
but it derives from the verb epipotheo, which speaks of an intense longing or yearning of sincere affection. The great Scottish commentator John Eady wrote that the word describes a strong desire, an intense craving of possession, a great affection for, a deep desire, an earnest yearning for something with the implication of need. And then he comments on what it means in this particular context. He says, here it describes the natural yearning of personal affection. Paul loved the saints at Philippi and had a longing for the joy of renewed fellowship with them face to face. This intense affection and desire to be reunited, that that existed between Paul and the Philippians is just so evident from the epistle. Back in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This great desire and delight in their company that that he described as love in the previous word was so strong that that Paul, under the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, could describe it in chapter 1, verse 8, as the affection of Christ Jesus. Nothing less than the, the visceral yearning of Christ's own love expressing itself to the Philippians through Paul. And the same was true on, on their part, on the Philippians' part. We see that in chapter 2, verse 26, on the part of Epaphroditus, who was a member of that congregation. You, you see, as Epaphroditus was making that 700-mile journey from Macedonia to Rome to minister to Paul on behalf of the Philippians, somewhere along the way, he became sick, and so sick that the text says he nearly died. And apparently, word had reached Philippi that Epaphroditus was gravely ill, but it didn't reach Philippi that he had recovered at some point. And so now that he's better and the Philippians don't know it, Epaphroditus is worried that they'll be expressing unnecessary grief over him. And Philippians 2.26 says that he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. This was an ache of the soul born out of tender affection and mutual delight that longed to be reunited with his brothers and sisters, to once more see their faces and to bring a smile on their lips and to embrace them as members of the same family of God. Like a soldier on the battlefield, wearied from the explosions and the fire of of heavy artillery all throughout the day, just like he climbs into his foxhole at night and takes out a picture of his wife and of his young children, and pines after them in his heart, longing to be reunited with them. Peter uses this word to speak of how a newborn maybe longs for the milk of the nourishment that comes from his mother's breast. And in the same way that that an infant child cries out from the pangs of hunger, Paul, this man's man, This man who could endure one physical assault after another and keep getting back up for more. This brilliant theologian with an intellectual capacity unequaled in the history of the church. This manly man, this brilliant intellect, longed for his dear friends at Philippi with all the affection of Christ. I love how in 1 Thessalonians 2, he describes himself as a mother nursing her children, and then as a father laboring with his hands to provide for the needs of the saints. I love that well-rounded strength and tenderness in Paul. We need to have that balance, especially men. You know, we hear all this brethren beloved and longed for, and we're like, come on, you know, that sounds a little too gushy for me. But friends, this is, this is Paul. It wasn't, wasn't anybody in, in the church more manly than Paul. I mean, you saw, like I said, the brand marks of Jesus Christ on his body. You could tell just by looking, and it didn't deter him one bit. That's strength. And yet he could soften into a mother nursing her children, into one who plums the depths of his capacities for affection and for love. Both of those emphases need to be on the forefront of our own affections and life. Strong against the opposition of the gospel. Enduring, no matter what comes. Standing firm as a good soldier. But tender and affectionate. With a heart as deep as his love for truth. And so I ask you, can you see 
anything of yourself in these pictures, in these examples of, of Paul longing for the Philippians, of Epaphroditus longing for his home church? Do you long for the fellowship of the people of God? One preacher put it helpfully when he said, where there is genuine love, there is genuine longing to be with the object of that love. Is that your experience? Does the delight that you profess to have in your brothers and sisters find expression in the desire for them when they're not together with you? I know that it does for some of you. It is such a joy for me to hear many of you speak about how you long to be in this place on the Lord's day, to gather with the Lord's people and to worship him as the gathered assembly, as your king and as your savior. It's a delight for me to hear you speak about how anxiously you anticipate Friday nights to enjoy the fellowship of your brothers and sisters in home Bible studies, how all week you're looking forward to that time to enjoy the, the fellowship of your brothers and sisters in those Bible studies. And my prayer is that that number among you would continue to grow more and more until every last one of us in grace life can read of Paul's affection and longing for his brothers and sisters and proclaim from our hearts. Yes, by God's grace, I, I know something of what it is to experience that among my fellow believers. It's not perfect, but I know something of that by the grace of God. Yes, there is experimental acquaintance with what I see Paul experiencing in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. And just one other brief word of exhortation on this point. Labor by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit that works within you to be the kind of people other believers can't help but love and long for. One way to apply this portion of Scripture is to check our own hearts, is to, to see if we have the kind of magnanimity and large-heartedness that Paul has for his dear friends. But another application for us, another implication, is to, for us to strive by God's grace, to press so hard after holiness and so hard against sin that the glory of Christ is so clearly on display in your life such that truly godly people can't help but long to be in your presence because to be in your presence is to see and be pointed to their Savior who is so eminently displayed in your life. Be those kinds of people. That makes it easy for somebody in this room to say, I love and I long for that person because I love and I long for my Savior. Well, two more terms of endearment that Paul uses as he addresses the Philippians. And we're going to consider those final two terms together because they really are a unit. Uh, two sides of the same coin, if you will. Look again with me at verse 1. Therefore, my brethren, whom I love and long for my joy and crown. My joy and crown. He calls the Philippians themselves his joy. And that is a striking designation for a number of reasons. First, given Paul's overwhelming emphasis on joy throughout this letter, there being some reference to joy and rejoicing 16 times in these four short chapters, so much that our pastor called this the epistle of joy when he preached it. It's significant that in the midst of all that joy talk, rejoicing, that Paul would identify his joy as the Philippians themselves. It's also striking, secondly, because of where Paul is as he expresses that the Philippians are his joy. Where, where is he when he says this, as he writes this? He's chained 18 inches away from a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week, under house arrest, waiting to stand trial before the Roman emperor. Paul's joy is unshakable because he doesn't derive his joy from the pleasantness and ease of the circumstances of his life, like many of us do. And finally, it's a, it's a striking statement to say that fellow believers are his joy rather than saying that Christ himself is his joy. It's kind of strange, don't you think? But given what we just said about displaying the glory of Christ by virtue of our conformity to his image, we find that the distinction between joy in Christ and joy in his people winds up being a false dichotomy. 
Because Paul can so clearly see the evidence of God's grace at work in the lives of the Philippians. It's precisely because his joy is in Christ that the Philippians are a cause for his rejoicing. When he thinks back to the founding of that church in Philippi and remembers how he had begotten them as his spiritual children through the preaching of the gospel, and as he now considers their growth in grace and their evident spiritual maturity after these 10, 12 years, his heart overflows with joy. He expresses that, that same sentiment in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9, when he says, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? But not only are the Philippians a source of present joy, their progress in grace is also a guarantee of Paul's future rejoicing in the day of Christ. This is what he's referring to when he calls them his joy and crown. This crown is, is not the diadema, from which we get the term diadem. It's not the royal crown that a king or a sovereign would wear. This is the stephanos, the laurel wreath awarded to the victor in the Greek athletic games. Paul speaks of this crown, the, the stephanos, in 1 Corinthians 9.25, when he uses that illustration of the games to stir us up to greater effort in the Christian life. He says there, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, a perishable stephanos. Well, perishable or not, they run to win, to stand on the highest platform and to be crowned as victor. But throughout the New Testament, the apostles, Paul, Peter, James, John, all of them, take that image of the wreath, the crown, and use it as a metaphor for the believer's final reward on the day of Christ Jesus. See that in 2 Timothy 4.8, James 1.12, 1 Peter 5.4, Revelation 2.10, and others. And so unlike that perishable wreath that would begin to wilt as soon as the laurels were picked from the tree, this wreath that the believer strives after, that the believer hopes for and yearns for, is an imperishable wreath, he says in 1 Corinthians 9. It is an unfading crown of glory, 1 Peter 5, 4. And so do you see what Paul is saying by calling the Philippians his crown? He's saying what he said of the, the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, where he writes, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. You are our crown. You are the designation, the evident manifestation that we've finished well. He's saying that the, the proof of the effectiveness of his ministry will be the spiritual maturity of the believers that he's invested himself in. They themselves, in the, in the progress of their holiness, will be his crown. And that's Precisely what he says in chapter 2, verse 16 of Philippians, as he exhorts them to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, so that they might stand out as stars shining in the night sky, so that, verse 16, chapter 2, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory, to rejoice, to boast, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. Pastor Albert Martin from northern New Jersey, where, near where I grew up, paraphrases this beautifully. He says, speaking as if he were Paul, If you Philippians continue in the path of obedience so that Christ is formed in you to the extent that you shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, when the Lord Jesus comes, I will not be found as one who ran but was not crowned as one who has nothing to show for all my endeavors but sore muscles. Oh, if you Philippians continue to be monuments of the power of the gospel and practical holiness, in the last day I'll wear the victor's crown as a minister who was used to realize the great end of the ministry. And that is exactly what Paul is saying. And we, friends, need to have that very same view of one another, that our fellow believers are our joy and crown of exaltation on the day of Christ. 
Now, sure, we are not each other's pastors and spiritual leaders like Paul was to the Philippians. But we all need to be involved in each other's lives, to be laboring diligently to aid in the sanctification of our brothers and sisters in Christ. This progressive sanctification, this race of Christian holiness that we're running, this is not an individual event. It's a team effort. Sanctification is a community project. You and I and our brothers and sisters in grace life and in in your Bible studies, we are given to one another by God so that we might encourage one another and sharpen one another and stir one another up to greater likeness to Christ, to greater hatred of sin, to greater love for righteousness. This is what we're here for to build into one another, to invest our lives in the spiritual maturity of God's people. We're here to get into each other's kitchen, to ask the hard questions, to give of our time and energy, to be devoted to one another in prayer, to be diligent to bring each other before the throne of grace, to model for one another how to put off sin and how to put on righteousness, to shepherd one another in the endeavor of putting off sin and putting on righteousness, and 10,000 other things that we could list, all the one another's of the New Testament. This is what we're here for. Alexander McLaren, that great Scottish preacher, said that the crown of victory laid on the locks of a faithful teacher is the character of those whom he's taught. And I would broaden that out to apply it to all of us. The crown of victory laid upon the locks of a faithful believer is the character of those brothers and sisters whom the Lord brought into his life, whom he poured himself into, labored to see them mature, proclaimed him and admonished every man, teaching every man to present every man perfect in Christ. Are you investing your lives in the lives of your fellow believers such that in the day of Christ, you will have a number of brothers and sisters who will be your joy and crown of exaltation? Well, if not, then with the thought of that glorious day in the horizon of your minds, you need to ask yourself, what are you going to do here in 2014 to change that? What in your life will you sacrifice in order to invest in that crown? How can you more faithfully give yourself to spending and being spent for the souls of your brothers and sisters? When will you finally get involved in a Bible study? And I say that very deliberately. You've been told to do it. You've been asked to do it. You've been encouraged to do it. You've been invited. When will you finally take the leap and do Take that that step of obedience of surrounding yourselves with these kinds of relationships that all of these one another's in the context in which that can happen in that small group setting when we're not 300 people, but we're 30 people or 15 people. When will you make time in your schedule to meet with that brother and sister or sister in your life for personal discipleship, to go through a book of the Bible together, to go through a good Christian book together, to discuss a theological issue together, sharpening one another with the the sword of the Spirit? When will you open your home to fellow believers and and forge true friendships and relationships in a true life-on-life context? Not just at arm's length, not just, hi, how are you on Sunday, but come have a meal with me Meet my family. See the way that I live my life. Observe if there's any hurtful way in me. Bring to my attention if I'm wrong and benefit where I'm right in in your imitation of me as I follow Christ. I would just exhort you, friends, not to forfeit what Paul calls your joy. Don't forfeit what Paul calls your crown of exaltation. What a wonderful picture. This verse gives us of the nature of true Christian fellowship. May it be that this warm affection, this endearing delight, this loving communion that existed between the Apostle Paul and the Philippians, may that come to mark us, Grace Life, in the weeks and months to come. May it be that 
at the end of 2014, each one of us would be able to look upon our fellow believers in this place and call them my brothers and sisters, those whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Christ, you haven't been adopted into the family of God, you've heard a wonderful picture of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be in fellowship within a body, what it means to belong, what it means to have family. But as you cling to your sin and as you cling to your self-righteousness outside of Christ, as you fail to trust in Christ alone for your acceptance with God and to forsake the pursuit of your sin and the pursuit of yourself, you stand outside of that family. You stand outside of all those benefits because all of the benefits that we've heard now are wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. And so if you are here this morning, maybe visiting with us, maybe here with a friend, maybe been here for 30 years and are being awakened in your conscience that this is so foreign from your experience that you don't know the grace of God in Christ. I would just implore you, beg you to dethrone yourself from your own heart. Cast your sin away from you. Turn from yourself. Turn from all your good works that you might count on to admit you into God's presence. And trust in Christ for righteousness. Follow him. And be welcome to the family. Pray with me. Oh, Father, would you accomplish this great work among this great people? Would Christ's life be marked by your grace in this coming year, by an overwhelming, unique, just amazing, almost strange commitment to one another so that those who are playing church, those who are playing Christian, look at that and, and just don't understand it, but on whom you look, and you find delight because you see yourself there, because you see your son there, because you see your spirit's work there. Would you make us aware and ever living in light of the reality, the objective reality that we are brothers and sisters under one father? Would you make us aware and make it our experience that we love with affection and with action our dear brothers and sisters? Would you cause us to long for one another? Such a delight in one another because we see Christ in one another that when we're away, we'd long to be back. We'd long to be reunited. Would you cause us to see the great prospect, the great reward of the joy and crown that what it will be on that day to come into your presence and to wear a crown that says, I spent and was expended. I poured myself out as a drink offering. I laid my life down so that this brother and this sister would know and treasure and enjoy Jesus Christ more fully. That is our great desire. What better could we spend our lives on but pursuing you and making others glad in you? Would you accomplish this work by your spirit, Father? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by The Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.